This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 11th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Now, coming up, we're going to have a look through the front pages with Terry Stiastny. Then, Monocle's man in Vienna investigates why Austria is still doing business with Russia. Also ahead, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will be telling us about the stories we might have missed. We learned that Donald Trump Jr., whose public utterances our lawyers tell us we may describe as animated and energetic, perhaps even spirited if we're feeling lucky, probably needs to do further work on his Willy Wonka impression. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. Li Qiang, the former Communist Party chief of Shanghai, has taken office as China's premier, the country's number two post, putting the close ally of President Xi Jinping in charge of reviving an economy battered by three years of COVID-19 curbs. The career bureaucrat replaces Li Keqiang, who's retiring after two five-year terms, during which his role was seen to be steadily diminished as Xi tightened his grip on power in the world's second largest economy. Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to re-establish relations after years of hostility that threatened stability and security in the Gulf and helped fuel conflicts in the Middle East from Yemen to Syria. The deal, brokered by China, was announced after four days of previously undisclosed talks in Beijing between top security officials from the two rival Middle East powers. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed on Friday. It's the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis that hobbled the economy for years. The tech-focused bank was based in Santa Clara and was ranked as the 16th biggest in the US. And the Biden administration will modify but continue with an Air Force One paint scheme that closely resembles the current white with two shades of blue, which dates back to President John F. Kennedy's administration, the Air Force has announced. A red, white and blue paint scheme for the presidential aircraft, known as Air Force One when the president is on board, was proposed by Donald Trump when he was in charge, but was scuttled after a study showed it would create too much heat. Now let's have a look at the day's papers with the journalist and author Terry Stiastany. Good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. Uh, you were here before I was this morning. <laughs> I was, yeah. An early camp, right? No, before you, before they put newspapers. <laughs> but now you've uh, had the newspapers, you've had a chance to look th- through them. And of course, there's one overriding theme in all the British papers, and that's the deal struck by Rishi Sunak here in the UK and Emmanuel Macron in France to do with migrants. And then many, many spin-off stories from that. Yes, that's. Um, there's been a, uh, there's a lot of coverage of this as as you would expect. Um, the Times' take on it is that they're saying that a chipper Rishi Sunak gives the Tories a new sense of hope um, and is talking about how 
these have been really the most, the two most intensive weeks of uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, prime ministership so far. Uh, so he's got a lot on. He was seeing Emmanuel Macron in Paris yesterday. He's flying to San Diego tomorrow for a summit with uh, Pre- President Biden and Anthony Albanese. And it's talking a lot here about just the amount of work that Rishi Sunak has has really been putting in. You know, obviously the the agreement on Northern Ireland um, and how a lot of these things fit together. I mean, particularly talking. I mean, it's very interesting looking at all. All the photos uh, that accompany this article of, of Macron and Sunak in Paris, and it's talking about the the symbolism of them uh, sharing an umbrella as they walk through the rain. And you can really notice there, I mean, visually the similarities between them in in how they're dressed. They're both in these sort of smart navy suits and the white shirts, uh, and they're both you know of a height, and and they've got such similar backgrounds as well, which is is fascinating. It's kind of not surprising that um, that they both get on, and it's also how that they both work you know quite a lot on the detail you know mm. they do sort of sweat the, the small things and, and the detail and it's just interesting um how much you know how all these things kind of link together so one of the things issues that they were talking about they're talking about defense and military strategy um and there's articles suggesting uh that they've overcome the big row in particular between uh the uk and france over the AUKUS uh, deal over the submarine deal uh, which happened in the past and they seem to have put that behind them you know to the extent that it's it's not a problem that Rishi Sunak is now going off to discuss that with with Joe Biden and, and the Australians you know a couple of days later um, so it's quite interesting um, also looking at the French uh, take on this because the the Figaro has got an analysis uh, and it's saying after the, the betrayal of the AUKUS agreement, the war in Ukraine has brought France and Britain closer together. Uh, and so Le Figaro is describing this as after five years of, of absence, uh, France and the UK have celebrated their sort of uh, strategic kind of refinding of each other um, and how Brexit had spoiled relations and also, you know, the, the nuclear discussions had spoiled relations. Um, and But now saying uh, that, you know, these these obstacles seem to have been overcome partly because of uh, the similar positions that they have on on Ukraine um, and they've got a common role they feel that like they've got a common role to play together so a lot of these these big issues kind of interlinking I suppose mm. but one of the biggest issues of course is their agreement about uh, migrants and how a lot of money will now be given to France to stop small boats coming over now this follows the government's announcements about what they're going to do that they were really going to make it completely illegal. Nobody is going to be able to claim asylum if they arrive in Britain on a small boat across the Channel. Uh, they've said that they will give uh, legal and safe routes to asylum seekers. Those have yet to appear. Yes, they have. I mean, obviously, there was you know a good deal of agreement between the two leaders, and particularly one of the things they were talking, you know, a very large sum of money that, that the UK is going to pay to France over the next few years, and it will allow France to uh, build a sort of a centre uh, in northern France uh, for refugees, poss- I'm not sure if a detention centre the, the correct way of describing it. This is a you know 500 uh, million, 540 million euro deal with Macron. The the FT is reporting some of the detail on that. An extra 500 police officers. But there's also an interesting uh, article here in the Financial Times where they have been to to Dunkirk in northern France to go meet some of the people who are trying to cross over uh, to Britain, and they're saying that as you know 
know, at the moment, I mean, the idea that Rishi Sunak has is that this will deter people. It will stop the break the business model of of the people smugglers who are taking a lot of money from from refugees to try and to try and come to Britain. But they're saying, well, you know, look, what can I do? They're quoting one of them saying, I'm not coming for the money, but to save my life. And he says that he Usman says he's a former soldier in the Afghan army who'd fled his village two years ago. Um, he's spent three months crossing Europe, mostly on foot. Uh, and so, you know, people like that, how, you know, I, they, they're desperate and they really, really want to come. And obviously it's dreadful that so many people have been losing their lives in, in these small boats. Um, but the risks that they have already taken are so huge. Again, in this article, it's quoting uh, an unaccompanied 11-year-old boy who appeared to have made it to France on foot from Afghanistan. And he was absolutely determined to join his brother in Britain. Um, And so one of the people working with the migrants here saying, you know, when you've done a journey like that, it's not the threat of a potential law that is going to stop somebody uh, from trying to cross. And so, you know, it's, it's it's really difficult to see how this will work in in practice, and again the potential legal objections internationally to uh, to the British law. So there's a there's a step up in terms of what Britain and France are trying to do about the problem. But we will obviously see over the next few months and years how how that plays out. Yeah. Now, of course, there's been a huge outcry about this in Britain, where people feel that, uh, as you say, people who are absolutely desperate, who have no other option, are being stopped from seeking safety in this country. And one person who has really Really been very cross about this and uh, talked about it very publicly is Gary Lineker. Now, of course, he is a former footballer, a very huge football star, and he's now the, the chief presenter on Match of the Day, which is one of the BBC's flagship programmes. It's a huge football programme, happens on a Saturday. Uh, big, big viewership, mostly, I mean, people love football, but they also love Lineker, who's seen as some kind of, you know, hero in, in this country. Now, he called the government's migrant policy immeasurably cruel and he compared the language around it to 1930s Germany. And, of course, it sent Twitter and the political world into a spin and it's had many knock-on effects. Yes, it's, this is, I mean, if you look at the front pages, obviously you would expect normally the sort of the big Anglo-French summit to be the main. So, in fact, the headlines on a lot of the papers are things like mutiny of the day and the times. Uh, lots of people talk, you know, big front page stories about Gary Lineker because, as you say, uh, he is so well-known. He's such a a national figure in the UK and the BBC seems to have uh, really, really messed up here. So what happened at first, uh, Gary Lineker, um, he made this tweet. There was controversy about it. Um, He has said, well, you know, my personal tweets and he he wasn't, you know, expressing this view on the BBC or on any BBC programme. It wasn't when he was on air. Um, But because he's, you know, he's got about, I think, 8.7 million Twitter Twitter followers, uh, it got quite a wide audience and there was this big political controversy. Now, the BBC said that he was going to be stepping back. Um, Gary Lineker didn't agree that that was how it had worked out. He said, you know, effectively said he'd been told that he was not going to present the programme this weekend. And then all of his uh, fellow hosts um, followed suit. So uh, the other commentators, uh, the other pundits who are also former footballers, um, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, said, well, we're not going to turn up on the show either if Gary Lineker isn't going to be there. Every other stand-in presenter that they might have had also said, we're not going to be on the show if Gary Lineker is not going to be there. Um, the BBC then announced, OK, we will go ahead and do the show without 
without any presenters at all and we'll just have the clips of the football. And then all the commentators who commentate on the matches said, well, we're not going to turn up either. <laughs> um, so there will probably be some form of, you know, football, I don't know, just perhaps silent pictures of, of people quite, playing football. Quite extraordinary. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how this has really kind of grabbed the imagination of, you know, everybody, journalists, politicians mm. and, and, and football fans. But also what it points to is what is the role of, of the BBC? Because the BBC is a public broadcaster and I think it's very important to point out it's a public broadcaster, not a government broadcaster. Uh, it's for the people, although the, whoever the ruling party is at the time, of course, has it in their gift to nominate the chair of the BBC. Well, the current chair of the BBC uh, organised a loan for Boris Johnson. He also gave a personal donation worth millions of pounds to the Conservative Party. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Conservatives are the architects of this migrant policy. The other thing that's come out from the BBC over the last couple of days is uh, the Attenborough documentary. Attenborough, again, one of the, the, the kind of people's National heroes treasure. of, yeah, of really, yeah. television, uh, has, has made a programme which has been deemed uh, that it would it cause too much heat to put it on TV, would upset the right and the government, and it's only being put online. Now, this ties into all of this uh, about, well, what about the bias of, this, of, the, of the public broadcast? Yes, I think, I mean, I think the BBC are saying that the David Attenborough programme is a slightly different thing because they were only ever commissioned to do five programmes in the series on the main BBC and this other one was always just meant to be online only. But the trouble is, in the kind of frenzy at the moment, it, it all gets caught up in that. And now, the, and the, one of the, the difficulty for the BBC here is that they have very strict rules. If you work in BBC News, as I used to do, you are supposed to be impartial in public. You're not supposed to take sides in political arguments. There are different rules for people who work on other kinds of programmes, so whether that's sports programmes or sort of more general programmes. And they've never really clearly been able to enforce this because they say, well, Gar you know, Gary Lineker says he's a, he's a freelance. He's entitled to his own personal views. He's not working on a major news programme and he didn't make any of these comments on, on any BBC programme and he was also allowed to make sort of political comments of a sort during the World Cup in Qatar when he talked about Qatar's human rights record. So sort of the lines have been really blurred here, but it, the way that the BBC has handled this has meant that they're now... So they've got all the critics on the right who are saying that they've been arguing that the BBC is biased and, and they've been really critical of, of, of Gary Lineker and other people like him. The trouble is you, they have now upset equally, if not even more, people towards like the centre and the left who are saying, well, why are you picking on Gary Lineker when they point to other presenters, um, such as people like Lord Sugar, who presented, you know, The Apprentice on the BBC, who have made explicitly political comments in the past and haven't had the same kind of outrage and the same kind of disciplinary threats against them. And I know from talking to people who, you know, work within the BBC in these roles, they find it really hard constantly to try and rein in people's use of social media, which, it, which is different. It's difficult because if some of your big stars have got more Twitter followers than your programs have, you know, viewers. You know, how do you how do you control that? I and mean, the people have got other interests as well. So there is a constant balancing act going on. But at the moment, the BBC seems to have managed to upset absolutely everybody, uh, and not really thought through how they were going to deal with this, or how they're going to deal with the fallout, or what their plan was. If, for instance, all your other presenters go on strike, so they've left themselves at the end of the week in a in a really difficult situation. And as we th say, that's absolutely dominating the front pages mm. here. 
year. Uh, the other story that never goes away at the moment is, is Ukraine uh, and Russia's war there. So a year into the war in Ukraine, Austria continues to do business with Russia, though both its banking, through both its banking and its energy sectors. Well, last month, Austria's second biggest bank, which is Raiffeisen, reported record profits, was 60% down to dealings with Russia and Belarus. Well, of course, this has drawn domestic and international criticism, with the United States Sanctions Authority launching an inquiry into the Russian dealings of Raiffeisen uh, Bank. So, Monocle's Alexei Koryalov is in Vienna, and he has some more. Die Sowjetunion ist der wichtigste und bislang einzige Gaslieferant Österreichs. Hier in Baumgarten wird das sowjetische Gas übernommen. In June 1978, Austria's energy company OMV was celebrating an unusual anniversary. Ten years of gas supplies from the Soviet Union. Already, as this radio report suggested, the Russians had made themselves indispensable to Austria. That original contract had been signed just weeks before Moscow invaded Czechoslovakia in August 1968, and it would be extended again and again over the following decades. It's now set to run until 2040, and Austria says it will honour its commitments despite another Russian invasion. Uh, Austria has spent about, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, between six and seven billion uh, euros for Russian natural gas uh, over the past 12 months. Uh, at the same time, Austria has spent about a quarter of the same sum for supporting Ukraine, both within the multilateral framework within the EU and also in bilateral aid. Wolfgang Müller is Professor of Russian and Eastern European History at the University of Vienna. What sense does it make economically to support financially an aggressor with 7 billion, at the same time trying to mend the damage that has been done and is being done while we are talking uh, by the same aggressor. And so even economically, it doesn't make sense to buy this product in the country uh, where the aggression comes from. You, you know, you put it very clearly. There are numbers, as you say. You know, you can look at the numbers and then, as you say, it doesn't make sense. Why then the Austrian government, uh, the chancellor, why, why don't they see it? Perhaps this has something to do with the various alternatives that have to be found uh, for replacing natural gas from Russia. And uh, certainly by trying to get out of the contract, the Republic of Austria may face uh, some uh, legal consequences. And I think that may explain uh, why the Austrian government has not taken a different decision yet. Uh, however, I think that the pressure is going to increase, perhaps change the position of the Austrian government in that regard. Pressure is also growing on Austria's second biggest bank, Raiffeisen, which has continued to do business with Russia throughout the war in Ukraine, effectively funding the Russian war effort. Nina Tomaselli, an Austrian Green Party MP, has called for a parliamentary inquiry. Most banks, almost all banks in Europe, try to stop all their business relationships with Russia since the invasion in Ukraine. And Raiffeisen Bank uh, from Austria does uh, the opposite. Um, 
Financial Times recently reported that 40 to 50 percent of all the cash flows worldwide to and from Russia are processed via payment systems of Raiffeisen Bank. And so my concern is that the Russian business of the Raiffeisen Bank um, harms the reputation of Austria and the Austrian economy. The Austrian government insists that it's important to keep channels of communication to Russia open and that Raiffeisen has so far acted responsibly. But Professor Wolfgang Müller at the University of Vienna says it's not Austria's place to act as a negotiator. I do not think that the weight, political weight of uh, Austria uh, today is sufficient uh, to actually change the course of events. If Austria uh, wants to play a role, then it would probably uh, be the role of a host uh, for negotiations, but negotiations are not foreseeable uh, in the near future. So I do not see uh, that Austria has high chances uh, for playing a role as a mediator for Russian-Ukrainian armistice or peace talks. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Many thanks there to Alexei. This is Monocle 24 and still with me in the studio is the journalist and author Terry Stiastany. Terry, we're both looking at this beautiful work of art. It is by Joshua Reynolds uh, and it is a seven foot high portrait of a Polynesian visitor to London in the 18th century. Tell us more. Yes, this is the portrait of Omai and uh, the campaigners are trying to raise £50 million to keep uh, this painting in the UK. There's been suggestions it could uh, go out go out of the UK and be, be bought by a, a collector elsewhere. And so the National Portrait Gallery, which is re- uh, gearing up for its reopening and other people are trying to, racing to raise £50 million. So there was a temporary export bar um, put on this painting in, in March 2022, but it's being suggested in the Times this morning that the government was, would allow an extra, an extension on that ban to, to give the gallery time to raise another £25 million to keep the picture in this company in this country. And one of the reasons um, that this painting is so important, and there have been calls from all sorts of uh, historians and art experts and others to say why this is such uh, an important painting for the country, is, is that, yeah, as you say, the first Polynesian man to visit Britain, um, Omai, who's really, who was really known as Mai, um, his, his birth name, he sailed to Britain with Captain Cook. He arrived in 1774. He was sort of celebrated in high society. He met the king um, and he was painted by Joshua Reynolds in about 1776. It's also one of the few um, pictures of of non-white people of that era that are currently in a big collection. And it's just so interesting to look at the portrait, which is is so different from it's you know it's got all the sort of signature, the big sky and the background of, of a Reynolds portrait, but this man who's barefoot, he has tattoos, he's got his, his long robes and his his turban, and it's just you know a really uh, stunning picture that says a lot about a particular time in history. And so, you know, there is... um it would be one of the most expensive paintings bought by uh, a British museum. Um, but, you know, it, it does seem to be worth it and it does seem to be something that should be saved for the nation, as they mm. say. And so there's a huge campaign, isn't there? Yes, a lot of people have been campaigning about it. I've seen, you know, there have been articles recently by people like Simon Seabag Montefiore and other other historians and other, you know, experts in, in the art world who've been really talking about uh, the significance of, of this portrait. It's currently owned by John 
John Magnier, who's a, a racehorse owner and, and an art collector. He bought it in 2001 for, for £10 million. But, you know, it's one of these pictures that you feel should should really be on, on public display. And this is so so often the case with, with the art market because these things are sold for such large amounts of money that it's difficult for, for public collections to, to hold on to them rather than have them go and, you know, be, be kept by a, a rich collector somewhere where, where we don't all get to see it. Absolutely. Terry, thank you so much for coming on this morning and I'm quite sure we'll be hearing from you in the week. Now, let's have a look at what Andrew Muller can see by the dawn's early light. We learned this week that the United States had, presumably while the rest of us were distracted by a pigeon or something, become a union of Soviet socialist republics. We learned this from former, and perhaps who knows next, US President Donald Trump, who appears to believe that those lines in America the Beautiful about amber waves of grain, purple mountains, majesty et al, require some rewriting. No one will even recognize a lawless, open borders, crime-ridden, filthy communist nightmare. And this startling revelation regarding the conquest of the citadel of capitalism by the dictatorship of the proletariat was just one of many things we learned from this year's iteration of the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. CPAC is an event beloved by four very specific classes of people. One, seething yokels. Two, paranoid halfwits. Three, grandstanding yahoos. Four, those whose professional obligations include the weekly assembly of some sort of whimsical news review pithily illustrated with verite audio. As it does save us an awful lot of rummaging around for material, frankly we'd be happy if CPAC just went on more or less permanently. Like one of those tyre fires that combusts so interminably that people come from miles around to enjoy the show, taking care to stay upwind. So among the things we learned from CPAC, other than that, this week's monologue would be a pretty easy morning's work, were the following. We learned that Donald Trump Jr., whose public utterances our lawyers tell us we may describe as animated and energetic, perhaps even spirited if we're feeling lucky, probably needs to do further work on his Willy Wonka impression. Uh Check under your seats if there happens to be a gold chocolate bar underneath there. That's a VIP, oh, I'm not joking. That's a VIP ticket to my father's reception tomorrow at CPAC. We also learned, surveying the auditorium, that a significant cohort of Donald Trump Jr.'s legions of fans have adopted a new thing of attending public speeches dressed as empty chairs. Nevertheless, we learned from Don Jr.'s plus one Kimberly Guilfoyle that... Their willing allies in the media are hell-bent on taking their far-left agenda mainstream. And frankly destroying all of our lives. We're doing our best, certainly. We learned that Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is a true story. The left has told us something that should put fear in the heart of every parent, and not just parents, every single person. They've said they're coming for our children. We learned that several-shirted former intellectual guru of Trumpism, Steve Bannon, hasn't given up on the idea of a presidential pardon. Now remember, 
We came off of, on 3 November of 2020, four years of peace and prosperity. We learned from Congressman Mark Green that you can overdose from touching money. Every American in our country is at risk for this. Uh, you, you pick up a dollar that's got fentanyl on it and you're dead. You think there's a gag coming about banknotes laced with drugs, possibly tied to a certain other speaker at CPAC, but our lawyer informs us there is not. And we learned that Senator Rick Scott has developed sentience. Everybody in Washington said I'm nuts. I might be. We learned a couple of things about actual or presumable Republican candidates for next year's election. We learned that Mike Pompeo is going the passive-aggressive route. I was talking about the time to elect serious leaders who are thoughtful, who speak about America as the most exceptional nation in the history of civilization. They're not denigrating it. They're not, they're not throwing out whoppers. They're not spending all their time thinking about Twitter. Whoever can he mean, etc. We learned that Nikki Haley may actually have a sense of humor or perhaps just a tendency to self-sabotage. When I launched my campaign, I said every politician over 75 years old should be required to take a mental competency test. And we also learned, which was good, because we'd been wondering whatever did happen to that mighty and impenetrable wall that 76-year-old President Trump was going to build along the southern border. Texas and Arizona said, could we use that wall? We'll finish it right up. And they said no. And they actually took it away and they hid it. They put it in a hiding area, which of course was revealed pretty quickly. All you have to do is send a couple of helicopters up. We learned, yes, that Joe Biden hid it in, and this is key, a hiding area. Although maybe Biden should think about calling the hiding area something less obvious. Just a thought. Happy to help as always. We learned that there was a limit to CPAC's indulgence of dreary rambling nonsense and that it was exceeded by Ben Carson, Trump's housing secretary. Though the degree of Carson's awareness of the fact that he is no longer housing secretary is disputable, who ploughed grimly on even after the hinting music started playing. The college students, young staffers, what you need to know about the government so that you don't have to... So we learned that CPAC clearly doesn't have one of these. And we learned that Senator John Kennedy, bless him, remains a heartbreakingly distant second most impressive ever Senator John Kennedy. What else is the truth? The truth is that God is great, beer is good, and, and the United States of America is star-spangled awesome. Anyway, only 360 or so days until the next CPAC, let's have a sound effect evocative of a really big advent calendar being hung up. we learned, as we very often seem to, that it could always be worse. In Georgia, the country in the Caucasus, not Marjorie Taylor Greene's home state, one is a weird backward swamp governed by lunatics, the other is a country in the Caucasus, we're here all week and so forth, we learned that the democratic discourse had degenerated to the point that Parliament had descended into fisticuffs, fade up, the authentic audio.
And we learned that it wasn't just American conservatives or nationalist Georgian MPs who were struggling to make their cases of put-upon victimhood this week. We learned that Russian Foreign Minister and haunted walnut Sergei Lavrov, speaking in New Delhi, was locating few takers for his interpretation of recent events. You know, uh, the war uh, which uh, we are trying to stop and which was launched against us using Ukraine, <laughs> U- Ukrainian people... Tough crowd. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you to all of you for listening. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend, and there'll be much more for us throughout the day. But from me and the rest of the Monocle on Saturday team, goodbye.